0: It's pray, Father. We thank you for bringing us together today, and and for gathering us not just as a a people, but a people who are one people, uh, who are a part of this forming of one new man, one new human race in the Messiah. And we thank you for your grace and your goodness, even as Bill prayed and. In all of the things that you do, in all of the things that you oversee, and in the infinite privilege that we have to be called by your name, you could have left this world to continue spinning out of control to its own destruction. You could have left us as individuals to ourselves to finally meet our own demise, but But the love that you have for your creation and your eternal desire for its eternal glory uh, have seen your hand extended in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you have done marvelous things. We thank you, Father, that you have been pleased to condescend, even to take the brokenness of this world upon yourself, to bear it and to put it to death and to be Uh, inaugurating a new creation in your son and for us to be the beginning of that new creation and the testifiers of it. We thank you and we praise you for that. As we consider this morning, this uh, marvelous story of David, your king, the great prototype of the Messiah, I pray that you would cause us to understand his story in that light that we would see in him uh, a foretaste, uh, uh, a preceding reflection of the glory that is in the Messiah, the, the glory that is your glory in his face. So we ask that you would teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up. Lead us into all truth for the sake of the formation of the life and likeness of Christ in us. And it's in his name that we ask Amen. Well, the goal of this series, hopefully everybody is aware, is um, not just to go through the Bible, although that's what we're doing, but, but the goal is to become familiar with the Scripture's own story, and not just the story that it tells, but how it tells its story, the things that it's concerned about, uh, ultimately the goal of the story. Why does it tell the story? Where is it moving towards? And, and hopefully we all understand that the story the scripture tells has its, its end point, its climactic apex, you know, ultimately it's, its fulfillment and significance in Jesus himself. And so as we move through the scriptures and we see the key themes that it uh, uncovers and emphasizes and develops, those things all should be seen through the lens of, again, the coming and the work of Jesus himself. And one of those key themes that is beginning to be unfolded is this theme of kingship and kingdom. And already in the creation account, we had some sense of that from the very beginning because God, who is the sovereign creator, intends to carry out his reign through this creature man created in his own image and likeness. And so those themes of kingdom, dominion, lordship are all present even in the very beginning of the creation. And Israel's life was, uh, Israel was brought into existence as the people of Abraham unto ultimately that goal for God to see this kingdom intent fully realized. And that intent obviously has Jesus at the very center of it. So kingdom and kingship are crucial themes Uh, that we need to understand. And in the developing Old Testament storyline, that begins that theme of kingship formally with the person of Saul and then immediately shifts to David. And as we've seen already, I hope Saul and David are, are kind of representatives of two antithetical forms, really the only two forms of kingship, kingdom, uh, how it is that God's dominion exercises itself in the world in and through human beings. And so we saw last time that Saul's failure wasn't so much his personal failure, although it was a personal failure, but the issue with it wasn't so much that he was a failed man but the way in which his failure shines the light on the antithesis between the way in which human beings naturally exercise kingship, this idea of the procedure of the king, uh, versus the way in which God would have human dominion, human kingship to operate. So just by way of introduction, and these are things I think that we all understand, but they're, they're again important for pulling together this contrast between Saul and David and why it is that David is so significant and and can serve this positive uh, prophetic typological picture of the Messiah. But the reason why this procedure of the king idea, this this human kingship thing uh, is universally flawed is because of this principle of self-centeredness or self-centrism that defines every human being. And this isn't a matter of good behavior, bad behavior, um, how smart you are, how educated you are, how uh, you know foolish you are, whatever it happens to be. Every human being, every child of Adam uh, lives life centered in themselves our own mind, our own sense of things, our own perception of reality. Um, ourselves, we ourselves are the lens through which we view everything and the gauge be which, through which or by which we assess all things. So the goodness, the badness, the rightness, the wrongness, uh, the beauty, the ugliness, the... Um, the value, the disvalue of things is all grounded in our own perception, grounded in our own minds. And that's the very essential basis of this thing of idolatry. You've heard me say, and maybe you've even seen it in his writings, Calvin's statement that the human mind is a perpetual idol factory. But the fundamental idol is the self, Because if all of life, if everything that isn't us and even our assessment of ourselves is through the lens of our own minds, our own perception, then even God becomes a figment, this concept of God becomes uh, an externalizing of our own minds, our own perception. We create God in our own image. God, G-O-D, deity, not necessarily the God of the Bible, but but this principle of deity or spiritual powers or forces are concocted in our own minds. That's the fundamental sense in which we are idolaters. And I know I've I've referenced this before, but in in Isaiah, as the prophet is talking about uh, this principle of idolatry and how consummately Israel's become uh, idolatrous. He says, those who fashion a graven image, all of them are empty. And their precious things that they craft for themselves are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? And the answer is every human being. Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. Why? A man shapes iron into a cutting tool. He forms the tool himself that he uses to make his idol. So he makes the tool, and then he does his work over the coils, fashioning it with hammers, working it with his strong arm, and then even forming his tools, his own weakness comes out. He says, I'm hungry, my arm's tired, I need to rest. His weakness is shown in even forming his tools. And yet then he takes those tools and he makes them, uh, he uses them to make his idol. Another shapes wood. He extends a measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes. He outlines it with a compass, makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man. He forms his gods in his own image. So that it may sit in a house Surely he cuts cedars for himself and he takes a cypress or an oak, raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for him to burn so that he takes one of them, one piece of wood, and he warms himself. He makes a fire to bake bread. He makes a god and worships it. He takes the same thing and he uses it to his own advantage in three ways, to warm himself, to feed himself, And to create a God that he believes will deliver him. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts roasts, and he's satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a God, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He prays to it and says, deliver me for you are my God. They don't know. They don't understand he smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, in their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I've burned half of this in the fire. And he said, they don't even step back and think about the lunacy of what they're doing, the emptiness, the futility of it. I've burned half of it in the fire and I've baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. I use these things to serve myself. They're they're subject to me. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. So this is how idolatry works. And the reason I wanted to read that passage is because idolatry is grounded in self-centrism and self-centrism as ultimately being... About self interest. Our idolatry is devised and fleshed out and and develops in a self serving way because everything within us and everything that isn't us is ultimately viewed, appraised, and utilized for the sake of our own perceived self advantage. That's the procedure of the king. And it doesn't just exist in the religious sphere or the societal sphere. It exists in all the spheres of life. It defines our relationships. So self-interest binds together all the dynamics of human existence. And that explains or, or helps us to see why religion and social, uh, societal issues, politics, human social interactions go together and that's true even in secular societies people groups identify themselves by and find their coherence in fundamental axioms that they mutually accept as true that they accept as beneficial to them collectively even so in the ancient world, and this comes out very much in the scriptures, we, you, know, um, you see this over and over again, the most important distinction between people groups was their gods and their relationship with them. It was believed in the ancient world that my people, we the Babylonians, we have gods that are dedicated to us. They dwell among us. They serve our good. If we will serve them, they will serve us. And so warfare was considered to be ultimately the battle of gods. And I won't read this, but I give you this citation here in Isaiah 10. But essentially the triumph of the king of Assyria, he said, I I, and our gods have triumphed over the gods of, of you know, um, Carchemish and Kalno and, and these various uh, nation states and, as, and even Samaria itself. We've triumphed over the gods of these nations, and so we will triumph over the God of Judah. So when a nation prevailed militarily, it was evidence that their gods were more powerful than the gods of the nations they conquered. But that was the fundamental way in which a people defined themselves was by the gods who were concerned about them and served them and resided among them and if they would serve those gods those gods would serve them so this intertwining of the idea of of religion and kingdom or kingship or social structures politics that's always been the case in human society and it's because fundamentally man is image son there there's this thing inside of us that recognizes that we were created for this dominion, you know we, we exercise dominion as lords in the world, uh, but we also are spiritual beings created in the image and likeness of God. But that intertwining of spirituality and social, political kinds of issues, the way in which human society operates, it 's perverted by that same self-centrism. So in the world as it exists, religion and kingdom function together synergistically as instruments of personal advantage. What do I mean? A person, a ruler, a nation justifies its political, social, societal ends by attributing them to its gods, somehow associating their own ends with the gods or the powers or the principles that are transcendent and are important. This isn't about me, this is about what's right, or this is about our God, or this is about his interests. And then in turn, they call on those powers to give success to the ends that they pursue. And this has been true even in in church history. This is why a lot of people say Christianity has just been a bloodletting from the very beginning. Even up through the time of the Reformation, you had opposing armies both raising the banner of the God, you know, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ going to war against each other and slaughtering each other on the battlefield in the name of the living God. So this is always the way in which human society works and Saul and David. So why do I say all of that? Because they represent in kind of a concentrated way, these two ways in which, human kingship, human dominion, human—that uh, this principle of human lordship uh, can operate. Saul represents the natural way it happens, where, where everything that we perceive as a resource for us is used to our advantage. You see it very easily in politics. You see it very easily in, in you know, um, kings and rulers, the procedure of the king. But every person lives in this sort of a way. We use what's available to us to ultimately serve our own ends. That's what Saul represents. Dominion reflecting man's intrinsic idolatry. Whereas David represents dominion reflecting man as divine image son. Man as exercising his own intrinsic lordship, if you will, or capacity to rule, um, not for the sake of his own advantage, but for the sake of the God who created him. Man as ruling as the image of the God who is king. And this is what the scripture wants you to see is that there's this fundamental problem in, in which human beings cannot be the image children exercising God's lordship in the way that he intends. And God chooses out a man who will be that sort of a man. And this is how David will become the great prototype of the coming man who will be image son, who will be king in the way in which David prefigures. So I say all of that again, just to again put this into the larger scriptural context and ultimately why David is even so important, not just in contrast to Saul, but ultimately as a prefiguration, a prototype of the coming Messiah. So in terms of the story itself, as we even read some this morning, uh, after Saul dies, David mourns his death. David doesn't celebrate. He doesn't say, now's my opportunity. Now I can seize the kingdom of Israel. In fact, what do you see him do? He goes and he inquires of the Lord, what would you have me to do? What would a normal man do? Especially one who had already been confident that, that God had, had given him the kingdom. And now the the adversary, the false uh, you know, the pretender, the one who's clinging to the throne is dead. What would you naturally you do? You'd say, this is my time. I'm going to go become king. But David doesn't do that. He says to the Lord, what would you have me to do? Where would you have me to go? And he says, go up to Hebron, go up to Judah, your tribal land. And it's there when he's in Hebron that the men of Judah come and they anoint him king. So David still isn't seizing anything. He's not using his advantage. He's not taking advantage of his situation. He inquires of the Lord. The Lord tells him what to do. The men of Judah anoint him king. But at this point, as I said last time, he's only king over one tribe. The house of Saul is still presiding um, over the other 11 tribes. So David is crowned as king in Judah, but ultimately, uh, Ishbosheth is crowned uh, as king to succeed his father Saul. And interestingly, here, and I pointed out in the notes that David is directed up to Judah, to Hebron in Judah, where he's anointed. Abner, who was uh, he's Saul's cousin, but he was the commander of his army. Abner takes Ishbosheth, Saul's son, and he takes him to. Mahanaim. Does that ring a bell? Genesis 32. When Jacob was coming back into the land, and he's in salt and um, Esau's coming out to meet him, and he's afraid, and he comes into this place, and he encounters an angel, and he names that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means camp. Mahanaim is a plural form in Hebrew that means like a pair. Like we're two corresponding things. So you would use that form for like two ears or two eyes or two feet, a corresponding pair. So Mahanaim means corresponding camps, two camps. And if you recall back when we went through that, the play on the idea is that it's a camp that, that Jacob has made, but it's Yahweh's camp as well because his angel is there. But it also speaks to two camps in that David, or not David, um, Jacob, in trying to preserve himself from Saul, I gotta go back in time. Jacob, trying to preserve himself from Esau, splits up his own camp. Remember, he sends his family across the the river. So this is the two camp idea. And it's interesting that that's where Abner takes Ishbosheth and crowns him king. So it's testifying that the house of Israel is divided. There are two parallel camps of Israel. The house of Israel is in two camps. And now the text tells us that continual hostility existed. It it persisted on between David's house and Saul's house for the next seven and a half years. And again, interestingly, it's division. The house of Israel is divided, but it's division within Ishbosheth's own inner court that will bring unity back to the 12 tribes. Because Ishbosheth accuses Abner of taking his father's concubine, and that infuriates Abner. That, that represents a treasonous action. And Abner confronts Ishbosheth and he says, I've served your father faithfully. I put you on the throne and now you're accusing me of treason. I'm going to go over to David and I'm going to do everything I can to strip this kingdom from you and bring the other tribes over to David. And that's what he ends up doing. He does everything he can and what's interesting about Abner is he knew that David was anointed and when you read through this passage, you see him even comment on the fact that, that David is God's man and, and he uses that argument even as he goes out to the other tribes and urges them to come over to David. He says, look, Yahweh anointed David, David is, is the guy. So, Abner knew that, and yet he was willing to thwart God's will for those years and stand alongside Saul and stand alongside Ishbosheth. But now, when his own reputation, when he has been accused of something, now he's willing to become God's ally. Now he's willing to stand alongside David. And again, you see the same procedure of the king idea. So, we don't know, the text doesn't say whether Abner developed any genuine loyalty to David because he ends up being killed joab kills him and you can read that for yourself but when david finds out that joab has killed abner because abner had come to david and and told him what he was planning to do and david said that's great do it well joab finds out abner's come seen david he's gone away he says he's a spy why would you let him go And he he goes and finds him and brings him back and he kills him. And when David finds out, he pronounces a curse on Joab and his house. And he issues a public lament for Abner. So he's done the same thing that he did for Saul and for Jonathan. David is showing himself. You know, you would think he'd be rejoicing again that, that these possible threats to his own throne, to his own kingdom are being dispatched. But he's not rejoicing. He's angry that that innocent blood, in a sense, has been shed, that unrighteousness and injustice has been perpetrated, and even in his name, for his sake. So David's response to Abner's death and Abner's death itself had two effects. The first thing it did is it disheartened Ishbosheth. He just lost his main man, who was his father's general, his father's main commander. And he becomes disheartened. He's kind of lost this, this uh, main loyal uh, uh, commander. And it encourages others around them to, uh, uh, that they can, in a sense, exploit Ishbosheth's weakness. This is the way kings and kingdoms always have worked, right? When you take the throne, you kill everybody who's a threat. And you make sure that you're constantly watching your back. So now this encourages those who would be uh, inclined to, to kill or to, to deal with Ishbosheth to their own advantage. But it also worries the rest of Israel. They see this thing uh, uh, unraveling. And it ends up making them rethink their allegiance to Ishbosheth and makes them ripe to come over to David. So, what comes from that then is two of Ishbosheth's commanders assassinate him. And again, when David finds out, he has them executed. He keeps doing the opposite of what you would expect him to do. And he wins over, by these things that he's doing, he wins over the other tribes of Israel. They see that he really is the shepherd of Israel, that he is what God has declared him to be, a man after his own heart. He's a man who loves Israel's God and Israel and God's people. He's a man without personal and political ambitions, whose only zeal was for righteousness and justice. This is how David is manifested. And so the people say, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. They come over to him. So now for the first time since Joshua died, the tribes of Israel are reunited in solidarity. Remember the, the book of Judges talks about the time after Joshua dies and the tribes are falling apart. There's all this inner conflict and disunity. Finally, to the point where um, they go out and try to wipe out the tribe of Benjamin because of the man of God and the concubine story. Remember, Israel's falling apart. It's coming apart at the seams. And now they're reunited in solidarity, not through manipulation, not through coercion, as was the case with Saul, but sincere devotion. They're bound to their king. They are united in their common love for and devotion to their king. Now, again, think about how ultimately David, as typifying this idea of what it looks like for a king to be truly king on God's behalf and how David typifies this one who is to come and the loyalty that he gains is the loyalty of love, not of coercion, not of force. So whereas Saul built and maintained his rule for his own sake through deception, conspiracy, and fear, David gained the kingdom through single-minded devotion to the true king. The kingdom came to David by him manifesting his devotion to God. In contrast to the procedure of the king, David was a genuine shepherd of Israel, a shepherd on behalf of the chief shepherd. So then the next thing that we see after David becomes king over all Israel, both in Chronicles and in 2 Samuel, um, which recount the same things. The, the first thing that we see David do is, is go up and take Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a Jebusite city. Um, it was an ancient city, and it was a Jebusite stronghold throughout the whole period, even under Joshua when they were coming into the land. But it was a fortified, strong city, and if you've been to that part of Israel, it's up on a high That's why they talked about going up to Jerusalem. It was an easy place to fortify. And Israel had made many attempts against uh, Jerusalem, but they'd never been able to fully conquer it. So it remained kind of the last Canaanite uh, holdout, the last Canaanite city within the land of Israel at that point in time. And so David is the one who finally takes Jerusalem. And that becomes very important because hopefully we know throughout the balance of the Old Testament, Jerusalem plays a central role in the salvation history. Zion, Mount Zion, the dwelling of God, the place that is the center of the earth where all the nations come, right? The place where God is encountered and worshipped, the place where he has his foothold, his throne on the earth. So David's taking of Jerusalem was a very significant uh, outcome. And uh, not only because he conquered it, but because he came to view it as the place that God had spoken of all the way back in the time of Moses, when God said, when you come into the land, when you conquer it, when I give you rest, then I will appoint a place for my name. Remember the tabernacle was a portable tent it moved around and God said I will assign a place and that's the place that you're to come the three feasts uh, the pilgrim feasts the three feasts of the year you came to the place where God's dwelling was and David comes to believe that Jerusalem is that place where God's going to put his name but when he conquers it he also renames it the city of David it becomes the capital city he reigns seven and a half years at Hebron, then the balance, the 33 years or whatever at Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the capital of the Israelite kingdom. It's the seat of David's throne. But what is David's mindset? I'm Yahweh's image son. I'm Yahweh's king. My kingship my dominion is administering Yahweh's lordship. He's the shepherd of Israel. He's king in Israel. And so it only makes sense that the seat of my throne should be understood by Israel as the seat of Yahweh's throne. And even later, the the text will say in 1 Chronicles, when David dies and Solomon takes the throne, that Solomon sat on Yahweh's throne in Jerusalem. So David wants to now build a, a house for Yahweh. That's what's coming. But the first thing that he does is he wants to bring up the ark to Jerusalem. Why the ark? Because the ark was the place of Yahweh's enthronement, right? It was associated with that, that expression, Yahweh enthroned between the wings of the cherubim. that That's the cherubim that are the mercy seat, part of the mercy seat that is the cover on the Ark of the Covenant. And in Israel's thinking, the Lord was enthroned in heaven. The Ark is the footstool of his feet, but his Shekinah glory, his his enthronement presence in the world was between the wings of the cherubim over the Ark in the Holy of Holies. So what David is seeking to do is to enthrone Yahweh on Mount Zion. He wants to bring the ark up. Remember, Saul's whole reign is characterized by the ark being off. The ark is never really a part of Saul's reign. You don't even hear anything about it. It sat for 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim, right? And David wants to now bring it up to Jerusalem. If Jerusalem is to be the city of David, then it must be Yahweh's city. So that's what's behind all of his thinking it's the proper inhabitation of the sun and therefore it must be Yahweh's dwelling place as well. And this reflects all the way back again to the creation account, man as image bearer in order to rule on the creator's behalf as image son in his garden sanctuary. So David builds a tent, a, a, another structure for the ark. And then he goes down to bring it up to Jerusalem. Now, the original tabernacle, this isn't that. It still continues on. But David builds a tent for the ark, and he goes down there to bring it up. And this is the account where they put it on an ox cart, and they start you know, bringing it up. And what you're supposed to see in that is that, gee, didn't the Philistines do that? And didn't God say way back when that the Kohathites were to carry it on poles? after it was properly covered. So this really represents David's first failure as king. We don't know why he did it, why he didn't understand that, but they try to bring up the ark on an ox cart, and when they get on the threshing floor and it kind of wobbles, uh, you know, the man Uzzah reaches up to stabilize it, and Yahweh strikes him dead. And David is shocked and angry at that. And he says, there's no way I'm going to bring this up to Jerusalem. And so they take it to a nearby house, the house of a man named Obed-Edom, and it sits there for three months. But then the report comes to David, the Lord is blessing Obed-Edom because of the ark being there. And so David decides, I need to bring this up to Jerusalem. This time, though, they do it in the proper way. They bring it up on poles, and it's this triumphal priestly procession a grand procession and the text interestingly has David leading the procession wearing the linen ephod the priestly ephod and offering burnt offerings and sacrifices through the process of bringing up the ark and remember Saul was stripped of the kingship because of offering So if we're following the story, we're saying, how come Saul was disqualified and God was so angry that he assumed that priestly role, but David is acting as a priest and God is not displeased with it? And you say, well, maybe God's changed his mind about kings acting as priests. Well, down the road, a king named Uzziah will try to also uh, serve in the priestly role and he'll be struck with leprosy and confined to his house for the rest of his reign. So nothing's changed. Why is is David able to do this? And it's, again, because of the typology and what the story is building the case for. David is able to function as a priestly king because it's in this process of enthroning Yahweh on Mount Zion. It's as a priest-king that David establishes Yahweh's kingdom and Yahweh's reign. Think again about the typology of these things and where it's going. So Yahweh's later covenant with David would reveal that his person, reign, and kingdom were to find their fulfillment and true significance in a regal son who would also be a priestly son to come from him. And probably the great Passage in that regard that the New Testament draws on repeatedly is Psalm 110. The Lord said said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And we'll see later on down the road um, that God will, through his uh, prophets, will bring together this messianic strand of the priesthood and the kingship He'll bring those two things together during the time of Zechariah when they're doing what? When they're building the house of God. They're rebuilding the second temple. So this is sanctuary language. This is enthronement language. This is establishing Yahweh's house, his throne where he reigns. Well, as David again is bringing up the ark, he's celebrating. He's dancing before the Lord. And his wife Mikal, watches this and she has an entirely different take on it. She looks at it and she says, is this how the king distinguishes himself? You're humiliating yourself. You should be ashamed of yourself. Is this how a king should act in front of his people? Where's your dignity? Where's your sense of pride? And she rebukes him for humiliating himself, acting like a foolish person in front of the sons of Israel. And he says, I'm happy to be a fool in the worship of God. This is about worshiping the Lord. David, in a sense, is oblivious to how people are perceiving him because this isn't about them. It's not about him. It's about his devotion to Yahweh. And this is, again, just in a very concentrated way, Another expression of that fundamental attitude in David, he didn't do what he did to his own advantage. He didn't do what he did with a sense of how are people viewing me? How is this going to work out for me? He did what he did purely out of a concern to honor the Lord. His whole process leading to the throne and now even the bringing up uh, of, of Yahweh to enthrone him in that way and there's even an echo here in, in contrast of Eli's own sons how did they exercise the priesthood what caused the ark to go away in the first place priests who were self-serving priests who abused the priesthood priests who didn't care about the God that they were serving they used the priesthood to their own advantage that's what drove the ark away And now David is bringing the ark back. He's bringing Yahweh back by being a different sort of priest. The kind of priest that God would have. So in that way also, as I say, Michal showed herself to be a true daughter of her father Saul. Just like him, she conceived of the kingdom and the kingship in personal and political terms rather than theocratic ones. In other words, rather than God as king, and this is all about serving and honoring him, it's about your own reputation, your own status, your own power, your own control, your own advantage. Her dignity and standing were her concern as his wife, as the queen, not the Lord's honor and worship. And like with her father, Yahweh stripped her of a legacy in Israel. She was barren throughout her life. She never bore children. And more than that, and I think most importantly in that that barrenness, was that God had made a complete separation between Saul's line and David's. If she would have had children, Saul's line would have still been commingled with David's, right? She was his daughter. So by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, then David had symbolically enthroned Yahweh on Mount Zion. Even when they're bringing up the ark, they refer to it as the ark that Yahweh is enthroned between the wings of the cherubim of that ark. They're bringing him up. They're installing him on Mount Zion. And he did that as the Lord's elect king priest. And so it would be with David's covenant son, as we'll see as we get down the road. So David is crucially important in the story. If kingdom is a central theme in the scriptures, uh, David is at the center of that. And when you look at even Matthew's genealogy, how does he establish it? He builds it around three things. Abraham, promise of a kingdom. David, realization of the kingdom. Babylon, end of the kingdom. Coming of the Messiah. This is the time for the renewal of the kingdom. That's how Matthew builds his genealogy of Jesus. So David is important he's the chosen king his reign and accomplishments were the nearest approximation to the kingdom and kingship that the lord intended in david we're to see what it looks like for a king to be the sort of king that god would have and that ultimately is what it looks like for human beings to fulfill their own royal vocation royal priestly vocation as image sons kings and priests to our god right That's what we are. So David received the throne as the culmination of patient trust and faithfulness. Never taking the incentive, never taking the advantage, never taking advantage of what was available to him to try to advance himself or make something happen. He waited and he trusted and he served the Lord. And he brought the Israelite kingdom to its pinnacle not just through military conquest, but more importantly, by establishing Yahweh's sanctuary throne in Jerusalem. That was the high point of the establishing of the kingdom promised to Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell in your midst. So David ruled Yahweh's covenant house and kingdom from Jerusalem as the seat of the Lord's throne and dominion. Echoes of the creation account. And this will carry us all the way forward to the hope of the coming of the Messiah. Yahweh's return to Zion to again establish his place in his house. Establish his house and take up his throne in his temple. This will all become important in the playing out of the story. So David is the great example. And in his story, we learn so many things uh, regarding what God is doing and where this is all going. And yet David, the man after God's own heart, would fall short of God's ideal. Already we saw that in the bringing up of the ark. Already we're getting hints that David is going to fall short. And we'll see next time that uh, very quickly David is going to have, he's going to act according to the procedure of the king in such a way that it's going to cause God to break apart the kingdom and bring its dismantling. That too, though, is by design because God had ordained that David would be the prototype of the messianic king. And for him to be a prototype, he must fall short of the antitype, right? He must come short of it. He must closely approximate it, but he would also fall short because he's not it. His kingship was non-ultimate. Both he and his ruler, Yahweh's king, would find their fulfillment in a son to come from him. And that will be the Davidic covenant, which comes next. We'll see that next time. And that Davidic covenant sits within the Israelite covenant, the Sinai covenant, which itself is the way in which God is working towards fulfilling the covenant promises to Abraham. All of these things sit together in that way. let me close us in prayer then and and we can go to our time of discussion father I pray that you would give to each of us um, focused disciplined contemplating worshipful minds and hearts that these things that we continue to unfold this marvelous glorious all wise story that it would bear its fruit of faith and faithfulness in us as well. We are so privileged to be those upon whom the ends of the ages have come. To be able to look back on these things uh, through the lens of the Messiah who has come, who has fulfilled Israel's history and all of its particulars, who has embodied in himself what Israel was called to be, what its kings were called to be, who has fulfilled that vocation on behalf of the world and has triumphed over all that contradicts. He in himself has crucified the procedure of the king. He has crucified self-centric human existence. And he, in his resurrection, has inaugurated a new human race, a new creation that will ultimately take everything into its grasp. And father, we thank you. Even as we prayed earlier that you have liberated us, you have given us victory over that bondage, over that enslavement to ourselves. And father, while we still, as Paul said, must continually put off the old self that is corrupted in its desires We do so as those who put on the new self that has already been created in you through Christ by your spirit in the righteousness and holiness of the truth. We thank you that in him we are a new creation and that we are no longer slaves of the age that was. We have been delivered from that former age to be inhabitants of your new creation And I pray that it's with those eyes and with that understanding, with that renewal, that we read these stories and go back and see how wisely and marvelously, how gloriously our God has been working from the very beginning. And that we would see in these stories and we would see in the whole progress of Israel's history Ultimately, again, your glory that is in the face of Christ, the glory that has now become our glory, the glory that we see reflected in our own faces as we are being transformed by your spirit into that same glory. What a marvelous thing to be part of this. And I pray, Father, that it would continue only to enrich us, to to fill us, and, and to become ever more profoundly significant to us. May we never get over this gospel, this good news of the triumph of our God and the establishing of his kingdom, the glory of God that is in Christ, in whom and to whom all authority in heaven and earth have been granted. May we never get over this gospel, but may it only continue to grow in in the sense of our delight, in the sense of our understanding, in the sense of, of the passion and the preciousness of it. So, Father, we do thank you. We thank you for all that you are, all that you have done. And we pray that you would help us by your spirit to be faithful stewards of this life, of this gospel, of our testimony, even in the world, our testimony in our own hearts to one another. May we be a people who live as a gospel people in all things. And we pray these things with the confidence, the assurance, the hope that is ours in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.